Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. <laughs> Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor Davis Hanson is the star and the namesake, and he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor's official home on the internet is victorhanson.com. You should be subscribing to that, and I will tell you why. So later in the podcast, I'm Jack Fowler. I am the man uh, lucky enough to be able twice a week to uh, ask Victor questions that I think you would like to ask him. And and uh, Sammy Wink, the other, she's the great co-host. I'm just a co-host. She's a great co-host. <laughs> also has the same duties. Victor's been interviewing some people too. Hey, Victor, a lot to talk about today, as there is always. And the first has to do with your kind of home or nearby, uh, Stanford University, and it had a, fr a free speech conference, but it seemed to have had to have been protected from a mob. And we'll get to that. And an important document going around that's about academic freedom. We'll talk, get your views on these things and other matters right after these important messages. <laughs> Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. 
Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 245 That's one 800 245 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash Victor, taxnetworkusa.com slash Victor. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I want to recommend to our uh, listeners to visit the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal. And there's a, um, a Richard Vetter, V E D D. E.R. Richard Vetter has a piece about this uh, academic uh, a free speech conference that was hosted at Stanford. Victor, you would think a free speech conference would be a kind of thing that would be open to the public or have press or media there. But this conference had to be invitation only, and it was and it needed protection from a mob. Uh, of course, now, if you're in favor of free speech, you must be up to something nefarious. I mean, personally, I was at this now infamous conference on free speech a few years ago at Yale that was uh, attacked uh, by Yale students. About, we had a mob outside. Uh, somebody, Greg Lukianoff of Fire, made a joke at the conference, and all of a sudden, this mob showed up. Um, anyway, this this is the new this is the new reality of um, not too far from where the free speech movement was created, Victor. And now we have to be wary of free speech. So there's that. And after, give your thoughts about what happened uh, there, or just like the thought that there would need to be protection. Yeah, for such I will. A thing. But what was strange about this is that Stanford has a history of not welcoming diverse views that when people like Ben Shapiro come, they get a noisy, boisterous, hostile reception. And there are, they blanket the campus with posters suggesting that he's a bug and he deserves a raid like reception. So when this group decided, you know, to have a academic free speech conference at Stanford, 
they they wanted invitation only, and they had a wide variety of different views. I mean, they even asked their former head of, as I remember, it was Miss Strosen was the head of the ACLU at one point, and she's not yes. conservative. And there were differences among the speakers. But then the, the Stanford community came back and said, well, this is closed to the public. Well, then they live streamed it so people could see what was going on in transparent fashion. But they didn't have very many resources. They weren't the university. They were an ad hoc group that didn't, you know, that wasn't like they were going to get a, a, a hall of a thousand people and be able to hire security, which you would need to do at Stanford. And so it was kind of very strange. It was Orwellian that the community basically said, well, we protest groups like yours, but you didn't invite us inside the hall, so we couldn't protest and disrupt it. Basically, that was the message that I got from it. And I knew a lot of the people who or I was out of, out of state during that period, um, so I didn't participate. But, I mean, they had some pretty diverse points of view. They had everything on climate change, Bacharya. You know, he talked about uh, medical policy as it pertains to COVID. They had Tyler Cohen, an economist, Amy Wax, a controversial law professor, Yes, there was a it was weighted more to the conservative side because the university is 93. I think the latest statistics that I saw at Stanford University, to take one example, were 93, 94 percent of the campus community. It's precinct voted left wing or, or at least they gave money to left wing groups. I'm not sure which rubric is the precise percentage, but the point is it was overwhelmingly left wing, as is the campus. So this group said, we're going to have different views. They're going to be center right, but they're just a small voice compared to your megaphone. And yet you want to come in with in an open forum and we know what you do because we've seen what you do and we're not going to allow you to disrupt it. And we're going to put it on the air. And that's what was so ironic about it. Right. The same professors who would have uh, who did go after you uh, Scott Atlas, Niall Ferguson. It was about two years ago. Went after uh, Niall, they went after Neil. They went right after him and called him a racist. They still call him a racist. Married to an Af- uh, a Somali, Aon Hersi Ali, who's black. They went after, uh, we talked about that at length, Scott Atlas. They went after me for suggesting that maybe the voting laws that were changed in May excuse me, March and April of 2020 were weighted to help Joe Biden, which they did. But that's not even controversial because the left, as we keep mentioning the Molly Ball time, admitted such and bragged upon it. Didn't matter. They felt that they were going to settle up. And they were the point was that they were going to pick on people and haul them before the faculty Senate and try to intimidate them or have petitions as they did with Scott Atlas or print daily attacks in the Stanford Daily against Neil Ferguson or myself or Scott Atlas. And then that would send a message to anybody who was slightly right of hard left wing that if you do something, you speak out, this is what's going to happen to you. And then like an adolescent, when people said, "Okay, we're going to just speak out, but we're not going to invite you inside the tent to burn it down, then they they just you know, like an adolescent, they start crying and said, this is a violation of free speech. So, Victor, Victor, not not cleanly related, but let's stay within the world of the, the academy. 
And there's another, uh, this has a topic or another issue that's arisen in the last couple of weeks is this document, this letter that's been circulating amongst, um, uh, not, I'll say a, a right of right of left center, <laughs> uh, uh, maybe even some left center, a, a rare professor, uh, about restoring academic freedom. It's been reported on in various places. Uh, you're a signatory, a signatory yourself to it. I believe now quite over a thousand uh, uh, college professors yeah, it's, it's, and, it's, and emeritus are. 1500 or above I'm not sure but I think it's much okay. it's getting more and more people signed. Yeah this this came about because of everything you know we've heard ad, ad nauseum if you are uh, in if you here, let me just read a quick little section here and then get to the um, your view of what the what the true benefit of this document might be it it makes these charges universities and professional organizations are instead moving headlong into institutional political and ideological activism departments and other university units make public statements of political views thus effectively branding as heretics and even bigots members who may question those causes increasingly centers and quote unquote accelerators are devoted to political and policy advocacy advocacy of the supporting ideologies and suppression of competing ideas professional organizations and journals announce all too often that certain kinds of research no matter how methodologically valid may not be published and have turned to advocacy university bureaucracies demand that certain authors be included and others excluded from reading lists and classroom discussion. Victor, I don't know that anyone would disagree that that is a pretty clear assessment of what's going on in the academy today. This uh, letter uh, calls for uh, the the uh, universities, associations, journals, etc., to adopt what they call the Chicago trifecta. And that has to do with the quote unquote Chicago principles that came out in defense of free speech a few years ago. Uh, the Calvin report, which is a requirement for institutional neutrality on political and social matters. And the third uh, part of the Chicago trifecta is the Shills report, which makes uh, academic, academic contribution the sole basis for hiring and promotion. Victor, I think. This is good. This is good that it's being done. It's good that there are so many uh, professors and scholars signing this. I don't know what effectively it will do in any one institution, and maybe that's not its point. But maybe the point is to show that, damn, I'm not alone. There are there are fifteen hundred. Yeah, I, I think that's the point. I think they're trying to tell university administrators, deans, and provosts, and presidents that you don't have to cater or you don't have to kowtow to these hard left extremists and worry over your job, that if you respect the principles of the First Amendment, then there's going to be people in the university community that will stand up and support you. And that's what it's aimed at. But again, it's a small number of people. And when they mentioned, you mentioned the Shills report, I think that's a half century old. Edward Chills was a very distinguished uh, public intellectual. I think he was a professor at one time at the University of Chicago and a uh, very famous guy. You know, he was a friend of um, Saul Bellow, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's, um, he wrote this thing or he was a primary architect of it a half century ago. So look what's happened. 
the subtext of all this, Jack, is that when Mario Salvio got out in the free speech area at UC Berkeley in the 60s, early 60s, his point was that you as a university don't have a right to have restrictive uh, rules of expression because you're a public university that transcend what the Supreme Court or what legislation say is permissible. And there was a big argument and they created a free speech. The compromise was that you could go out there and you could say the F word or you could you could do almost anything. And remember, it was the left. It was the ACLU that said, we're going to defend free speech, even if it's Skokie, Illinois, and it's Nazis. We're, we don't care. The more free speech, the better. And it was all the liberal law professors who said, you know, the Second Amendment was never designed to protect orthodoxy. Who would want a law that would protect orthodoxy? There's no need for it. it. The Second Amendment was designed solely to protect unpopular expression, minority expression. But that's all gone now. It's completely flipped. The left is the Soviet Maoist Orwellian mindset now. And the mindset is that we have a mission and it's a quality of result. It's diversity, equity, inclusion, and radical climate change. And we'll throw in abortion to the day of birth. And we'll throw in transgenderism and these other issues. And they are so important that we have to have a monopoly on expression. And we're going to go after anybody who objects. And I don't mean just go after them and say, how dare you object? We're going to call you a racist. We're going to call you a Holocaust denier. We're going to call you a climate denialist. We're going to call you an insurrectionist. And that's what they do. And so there's people who say you can't you can't have a, a university like this. And that Shills document, just to go back to it, that was a pretty non-controversial idea that you wouldn't use criteria other than academic excellence and uh, you know, well-known achievement that was a matter of record in hiring and and admissions and promotion, tenure, et cetera, because what would be the alternative? The alternative would be tribalism. You would say, he's my first cousin. He's a member of my tribe. She's uh, my daughter's in-law, whatever it is, nepotism or tribalism, and then that would override meritocracy. Remember what meritocracy was designed to do it was a liberal concept that you wouldn't take into consideration gender, race, class, money, etc., Aristoc- aristocratic background. You would just say, we're all going to be thrown in the pot and everybody is free to fail or succeed based on their own talents. And then what happened, the 60s championed that idea and then they found out that it did not deliver the desirable results of this particular group. That particular cadre did not achieve proportional representation. And by 1970s, they were confronted with a fundamental choice. If you don't have enough African-Americans, just to take one example, that are getting into Harvard or Stanford or Yale, and that's what you want to achieve because their test scores or their GPAs are not competitive, as, say, other groups that are, quote, unquote, non-white, maybe Punjabis or Asian Americans from Taiwan or South Korea or Japan, 
then we're going to make sure that they have an equality of opportunity. We're going to go into the inner city. We're going to have academies. We're going to offer Latin. We're going to create all of these instructional uh, help at the early stage, kindergarten, one through K through three. We're not going to have therapeutic courses like black studies that quote unquote will give you self-esteem. We're going to acquire it naturally by your excellence and achievements, what Tom Sloll spent his whole life trying to to articulate and to persuade people. And then they said, no, we're not going to do that. Well, that's a lot of work. <laughs> it's just that's uh, who who would ever want to go into South Central Los Angeles and set up a private academy where kids wore uniforms and they took Latin. And then, but it was but, it, but who's what was that movie, Victor? I, I'm terrible with this. Stand the, and deliver, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh well, the standard of the Edward right? almost yeah. was Edward uh, almost right. The, yeah. the, the the math teacher. Yeah, it's it's for real. It can be done. Well, I tried it to do done. it for twenty years at Cal State. I was I was farming. I was part. I you know I was twenty eight years, twenty nine years old, and I went up there, and I it was the closest university, and I said, look. I had a PhD from Stanford. I got it when I was 25, 26. I've been farming, but I think I could offer a program. And they said, we don't offer Greek. We only have one Latin class. What are you talking about? And then I kept at it and I was hired part time. And then I hired a brilliant colleague, Bruce Thornton. And then next thing I knew, we hired and we had at one point five, five professors. And the whole point was that that demographic who went to Cal State Fresno was largely at that time increasingly poor whites from the Oklahoma diasporas from the southern San Joaquin Valley, especially. It was Mexican-Americans, many of them what we would call not illegal, that's the improper word now, but undocumented, so African-American, but a lot of Southeast Asian first and second generation Hmong. And we went it was a very diverse group. And we said to them, we're going to teach you Latin. We're going to teach you Greek. We're going to give you a strong minor or an individual major in ancient history. We're going to offer composition in Latin or Greeks by special tutorials. We're going to read uh, literature, mythology in translation. We're going to have humanities from Homer all the way through the Renaissance and then from the Renaissance to the modern period. We're going to do all this. And if you want to go on, we don't suggest you do, but if you want to go on and be a professor or you think you want to go to law school or you want to go to business school or medical school, we're going to design a master's program in the history department for a year or two that will make up any remedial work necessary that you lacked in K through 12, even though we've had you four years, but we maybe with an extra year or two, your GRE, SAT, LSAT, MCAT, whatever the, the test, and we're going to help you. We're going to, and, and, and we made, I mean, we had, I think it was 45 people over that 20 year period went to the Ivy League. Not that that's a rubric of success necessarily, well. but we had people that were Gosh, they went into business. They went to law school. They were very successful. And, you know, we had some support for the administration originally. We had a wonderful dean, Luis, Luis Costa, who's now deceased. Joe Satin, a now deceased dean, helped us. We had a president, Judith Kuypers, that was a big supporter. But 
finally there was a, a there grew a lot of resistance and the resistance did not come from of course white supremacists it came from the ethnic lobby of faculty and students who felt that these students were superior in a they were educated in a superior fashion and therefore they were not beholden to the therapeutic community because they had right. now, after four years, five years, developed such confidence in their communications, their written English prose, their knowledge of history, knowledge of languages. Many of them took three or four languages that they didn't need anybody to tell them that they were victims. And that was a threatening idea. And it, it was also 24-7, because if you're going to do that project, we should have done it nationwide. And I wasn't the original. I just emulated what I saw with other groups. It's a 24 uh, seven yeah. because you have students whose parents will come into you and say, you know, my son thinks he's too good now. He thinks he wants to go to the Ivy League or Seriously? my daughter's got to be a waitress for 40 hours a week. And how is she going to study? How many hours does it take yeah. to learn Latin? You say 2000 hours a year, perhaps. Well, those are 2000 years he could be working on the farm. So it's a you have to tell the parents you have if somebody comes to you and says, Professor Hansen, I'm moving and I don't have a truck. I, you say, take my pickup. Here's the keys. Or if somebody said, I got in trouble with uh, something and I'm on probation, you go to my office eight to nine when I'm not there every morning. You sit there and I will monitor you where you are. That's the kind of stuff you do. Or somebody comes in and says, wow. I don't have enough money for shoes. And I, yeah. okay, here's a check. That's what everybody, that's what teachers do. Right. But it, it gets exhausting. And especially when you're attacked for doing it. And so yeah. it, it makes you kind of jaded. And after 20 years, I, I was exhausted. But that was something that worked. And there's still, yeah. that program is still there under different auspices, but it's still there. And if we did things, and, and again, I was emulative, not, creative but there it's everywhere and we know what works we know what works if when you if you have wealthy white coastal elites and they say i want to make sure that if stanford university has african-americans demographically proportional that that rubric will not only have superior test scores and gpas uh, but it'll be superior to people in the general stanford community and you can do that if you're willing to invest right. your time and labor and to take criticism. But when you don't do that and you promote on the basis of race or gender or tribal or ethnic affiliation, and you haven't had a meritocratic component to that, then you're going to be in an endless cycle of excuses and rationalizations and contextualization. Well, this person didn't didn't do as well because this, that, and that. And therefore, we're going to overlook the results because of this and that and those and these. And that's where we are. Victor, I, I, we, there's a very worthwhile a story we'll talk about after um, the break about what's, what's, hap what's happened in San Francisco on uh, the election the, the folks that run the election uh, system there and all about, as you just brought up, meritocracy and race-based criteria. But before we before we do that, which and then we'll have to have a, a little commercial, I, I am interested, I can't help but ask, when you first had this idea to create this program, 
What were the initial, did you have a eureka moment? And did when you first contacted someone at the college, was it, was there a, a initial interest or was there, no, like, who the hell are none, you? What are you crazy? None, no, no, no. I came back with a PhD from Stanford in 1980. I'd finished my thesis, but I had a Whiting Fellowship, so I didn't file for the degree because I spent a year preparing it for publication and working, coming home on weekends and farming. And then I came home. There were no jobs for a white male in 1980, believe me. It was in a recessionary climate anyway. And I came home and farmed full-time with my siblings. And I went up immediately. I, I looked at the university and I thought, wow, there's a CSU. I've known it, Cal State Fresno. It's big, 12th at that time. 12, I think it's over 20, it was 12. There's a community college in Reedley. There's a community college in And I went to all of them. And it was no, 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 no. And usually it was who in the world would want to take Latin or Greek. And then I went to Cal State and there was a professor who taught German in one class of Latin. And he said, no, I don't want anybody else here. And then I went to the chairman. He said, no. And in, my, in their defense, I didn't wear a tie and suit. I was farming. So I drove up in a pickup truck and walked in with you know, T-shirt and work boots, but they thought I was insane. And I went 1980, 1981, 1982, 1983, and finally the person who taught one Latin class got ill, and I jumped out. They called me and said, hey, they didn't give me much warning. This person is ill, and would you like to do it? And I came up there for a class, and then I started doing these things, and it started to expand. And then I gave a lecture, a public lecture uh, about classics. And one of the senior members of the McClatchy, very liberal family, heard it and said, this is wonderful. What would it take? I said, I'd have to be full time. And so she gave a donation. I think it was $22,000. And that paid my salary for one year with the oh. proviso that if it worked, and I had to teach five classes, if it worked, then the university had to give me a chance. And so I taught five classes and I thought I was in heaven making $22,000 with benefits. And the next thing I knew, they said, okay, we'll give you a lectureship for another year. I know job security and then, but we're going to see if it works. So I did it a right. second year, third year actually. And then they said, okay, we're going to have a tenure track appointment, but we're going to search nationwide. And they did. They had 160 applicants for the job that I created. And I was a white male applying for my own job on a permanent basis. And I can remember, I won't mention names, the chairman said to me, you know, there's some really good candidates that are people of color and with a different and would it, would you be too offended after you created this position that we hired one of them instead of you? I said, if they're better qualified, go ahead. But they had no teaching right out of graduate school. And so that was kind of stressful. And then I got it. And then I decided, you know, I need more and more help because the thing just took off. And then I started hiring people. And, you know, it was very hard to hire in those days because you had what we called an affirmative action officer and classics did not have a lot of people of color. And they said, you're going to hire, you're not going to hire a white male. We had a white male in the English department part-time. It was brilliant, Bruce Thornton. And I could not hire him for five years, it took. 
But there was a lot of institutional opposition. And from my department, there was opposition. And then I decided that they wanted what they call full-time equivalent funding. And that means for each student, you get credit in budgetary terms. So I began to offer huge classes in Greek history, Roman history, mythology, Right. Uh, things like that. And when I did that, I'd get 60, 70, 80 people. And you, if you teach five classes, you're supposed to have 125. If you teach four, 100. And I could, I could get 70 in one class, right. which meant, you know, 70 term papers, 70 midterm, 70 finals. You had to correct no, no teaching support. And then I could offer, I don't know, Petronius or Livy or Tastus with nine in advanced Latin and maybe, Aeschylus, not Aeschylus. Well, I did teach the Prometheus Mound once, but oh, I could teach Euripides or Aristophanes or Herodotus with, you know, seven or eight. And I'd have, you know, three sections of Latin with 30, but I could get my 125 per faculty. And I, and once I did that, they said, you know, and finally we were getting plus, we were getting like 150 students per faculty position. And that that meant there would be no longer any opposition and you could offer courses that were necessary for classic. Right. And believe me, I can tell you without any hubris that if you look at the Princeton classics department, that just out, I mean, just said that Greek right. and Latin were not necessary to major and what a classics major, an individual major at Cal state Fresno, it was much more rigorous than what is offered now at Princeton. You are, and I know you are, a persistent man, Victor Davis Hanson. So anyway, we're going to talk next about uh, San Francisco, and we'll do that right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes, so no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 
at factormeals.com slash victor50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code victor50, that's code victor50, at factormeals.com slash victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Our happy home on the internet is John Solomon's JustTheNews.com. I'd like to recommend to our listeners to visit VictorHanson.com, and you'll love what you see. You'll see plenty of links to things Victor writes, but you're going to try and click on these some of these articles, and you're not going to be able to access them. Why? Because they're ultra articles. They're pieces Victor writes exclusively for VictorHanson.com. Um, you are depriving yourself if you do not subscribe, and I wish you would. It's Test it out, $5. It's all you need to stick your toe in the water and see this treasure trove of uh, great material Victor writes every week, in and out. There's a, a lot of content, um, and you'll get that for the year, which is discounted at, for $50. So victorhanson.com. You'll also find links to his to his books. I, I If you've, you've got Christmas coming up, if you know someone who's a fan of Victor, Go go click on the book links and you'll you'll find plenty plenty of good stuff that will make very welcome uh, Christmas gifts. As for myself, Jack Fowler, I um, I write for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, a free weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts that offers a dozen and then some recommended readings that things I've come across in the previous week. It's a free, again, free email newsletter that we're not building a list. We're not selling your names. We're not trying to sell you anything. Uh, links to the articles and some excerpts. Lots of folks like it. So check it out. Sign Go to civilthoughts.com and you can sign up for that. And I, I do want to recommend visit also, please, AmericanPhilanthropic.com. You'll see a little link for events. Click on that. Find the event free on December 6th. I will be hosting a webinar with Victor and um, Tony Woodleaf. Tony's the author of I, Citizen. Victor is author of The Dying Citizen. And we're going to be having a one-hour webinar on the fragility of citizenship. Again, it's a free uh, free webinar. So I uh, hope you'll consider uh, attending that. Victor, um, speaking earlier about meritocracy, race-based criteria, etc., there's kind of a startling and, to me, blatantly racist story uh, that's out of San Francisco. And I know you and Sammy did a great episode a couple of weeks ago about things all about San Francisco, but this came out the other day Headline of a story, San Francisco elections official released from contract because he is white male. Um, his name is John uh, Arntz. The commission that that if he has overseen San Francisco's elections um, for the last 20 years. He, he operates in you know, five-year cycles. He's a, a contractor. 
and he has received sterling acclaim from the commission that oversees this, but that same commission in a 4-2 vote uh, in a closed session uh, in late November voted uh, to decline to renew a fifth five-year contract for Arntz, John Arntz, so that the city could, could, quote, take action, end quote, on its, quote, racial equity plan. He was commended, by the way, for, for the head of the commission for his impeccable service over the years. Um, wow. Uh, this is not... Um, this is this is not the America that uh, Martin Luther King was talking about, Victor, was it? No, and I think they'll be subject to litigation because they're not even subtle about. It. Usually, when people do this, they use race as the only criteria for hiring. They talk about intangibles. Um, well, maybe say an admission the test scores are not there, or the. Te- the GPA is not there, but there's community service that can't be calibrated or there's experience for a candidate or there's fee days among particular marginal. But they didn't even try this. They just said, you know, a senior physician is quite a plum and this guy is a white male and, and he's just occupying a space that that takes it away from a person of color. And I don't know when we're going to get to the point where we call it racism and I mean that sincerely because the institutionalized critical race theory, ethnic studies of the university has brainwashed America into thinking that if you're a person of color, you can't be racist when anybody knows that all humans can be racist. And there is no rainbow coalition. There's no uh, the diversity monolithic. You can see that in elections increasingly. But this idea that you just simply discriminate against somebody on the color of her skin is, is racist. And I guess it's predicated on there are so many liberal judges that came in during the Clinton and Obama years that you're bound to get a federal judge that will not hear your case. And there's not enough conservatives. I don't know why they deliberately violate uh, the Civil Rights Act and they feel they can get away with it. And it, it tells you that the, the deterrence is on the left. They are more afraid of left-wing mobs, protesters, activists, political officials than they are the law because they don't think the law is going to be enforced that, that prohibits that discrimination. And it won't change until not just once or twice, but systematically people sue and they win. And then it will change because it will cost them too much. But think about there was no criticism that he was partisan. I think even the mayor said that he was completely politically independent. London Breed said that. Right. The mayor mayor actually opposed the commission. Yeah. So the point was, it's kind of resonant of Alexis de Tocqueville's stunning admissions in one of the most famous passages in democracy in America. And he said, America's engaged on this constitutional democratic experience, and we worship well, and I think it will work because of free holding agrarianism that's going to help it. There's not going to be a peasant class, but you, it has to be very careful because most people would rather be equal and collectively poor than to be collectively better off, but have some people more better off. And I think they're saying we would rather 
this commission is saying we would rather be proportionally representative, even if we run a risk of having somebody biased or prejudicial holding elections because we have somebody that we know didn't do that, but he's white. And it's the same principle. And I don't know at what point America just collectively says we're not going to do that anymore. You look at polls and people say, do you believe in using race as the primary criteria of race? It doesn't poll more than 40%. So the public is against it, but the elites are for it. And it's not just the Al Sharptons of the world or the, the Obamas of the world that have been direct beneficiaries of it. It's wealthy, the same old, same old crowd. It's wealthy, mostly white, bi-coastal elites. And they are uh, adamant in defending this system, which they never abide by. If they have a white male son who went to prep school and he wants to go to MIT or Harvard or Yale or Stanford or Berkeley, by God, they're going to find a way to get him in. And that, that means either a donation or calling up a friendly dean or talking to somebody they know. But uh, for everybody else, for Joe Smith, that, you know, right. I don't know, he works as a telephone uh, installer in Dayton, Ohio, who's a white male, working class kid with a perfect GPA and top test. He's not going to get in. Mm-hmm. No way. No way. Unless he identifies as a woman. Maybe <laughs> maybe then he might. Hey, Victor, um, another troubling story. And this is really troubling uh, to me. Uh, I would assume it might be also for our listeners. Is a um, The results of a survey that came out the other day by Resume Builder, um, so resumebuilder.com did a, a, a poll, polled um, uh, 1,131 hiring managers and recruiters across a broad series of industries from agriculture to you know high tech. And the questions are about uh, perceptions on Jews. And 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 would you would you hire a Jew? Uh, would you try to prevent a Jew from being hired, etc.? This is, I think, it was precipitated in part by some of the news that's been out recently. You know, Kanye West, who we talked about on our recent, most recent podcast, uh, Kyrie Irving with the Nets, uh, Dave Chappelle had some comments uh, related to Kanye West. So, whatever precipitated this poll. The findings are really disturbing. Here are some of them. 26% of hiring managers say they are less likely to move forward with Jewish applicants. The top reason for the negative bias is a belief that Jews have too much power and control. 26% make assumptions about whether a candidate is Jewish based on their appearance. 23% say they want fewer Jews in their industry. 17% say their corporate leadership, has told them not to hire Jews. And a third say anti-Semitism is common in the, the workplace. 29% say anti-Semitism is acceptable in their in their company. Victor, um, this is really, I mean, to me, alarming, even surprising. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised. Maybe I thought the all the other cultural yammerings about 
Jews and hostility to Jews, say from AOC and and, and the, the the whatever they're called, I forget the group of those those uh, congresswomen and the such. Squad. The squad, excuse me. I, maybe I thought it was just a re- reflective of of uh, cranks, but this is this is uh, disturbing. Um, anyway, well, I think uh, what we have to realize behind this is that there's always anti-Semitism. And say 80 years ago, 70 years ago, the left was the protector of Jews in the in the workplace, in the public arena. And they were always going after, I think, justifiably so, small contingents of right wingers. You know, the Klan, the really hard, hard right, fascist, American Nazi, all those groups. And that's changed. And so it has been mainstream. So when you talk about anti-Semitism, it's coming from the left and it's coming from a variety of different ways. It's coming from the Kanye West African-American complaint that so that they don't control. uh, They talk about NBA players as being slaves working for Mr. Silver, who's the NBA commissioner. They talk about. LeBron James is not control of his destiny. Kenya West is talking about all the Hollywood producers and financiers and directors who are Jewish. And then you add in the squad who comes at it from a different, you know, it's about the Benjamin's baby, Ilian Omar, or, you know, AOC doesn't even, I think doesn't even know where Israel is on the map, apparently. And you had Talib, and she's always blessed. So you have the anti-Israel and that popular narrative that the Palestinians are like people of color in the United States, and they're being oppressed by white uh, overlords, which are the Jews of Israel, that that line. And then there are people who look at primary uh, people in the news, a Jeffrey Epstein, a Harvey Weinstein, a Sam... Bankman, and then if you can, you can read literature, well, they'll very subtly uh, suggest that this is not because they're left wingers, or not because they come out of a bicoastal, bankrupt moral culture, but because they're Jews, and so all of those feed into this narrative, and it's becoming acceptable because the left doesn't say anything against it, and when you add in the knockout game, and you see these uh, traditional attacks on very orthodox Jews, right? People, no one seems to call that a hate crime. Right. Or when you look at what's going on, you know, I mean, I'll be frank. If you look at the last year that we had statistics, I think it was right before COVID 2019. I think it's increased since um, my own popular impression is that the African-American community is 12% of the population, but it accounts for 25% of the hate crimes. And that's largely not the African-American community. That's the African-American community of males between the ages of 14 and 40 that have a criminal record. And they are inordinately and asymmetrically attacking Asians and, and Jews. And there's not a lot of popular outrage about it. You see, the Asian community has even had young spokespeople say this isn't we're not going to talk about who's doing this and the same thing with the Jewish community. But I'm getting at there's all these currents and they join together in a kind of a tidal wave of acceptability. 
So if you're a popular person and you denigrate Jewishness, you're probably going to get away with it. And Kanye West doubled down. And I think there was a demonstration for the other day of the Black Hebrew movement in Brooklyn, where all of these people said, you know, we're tired of attacking right. black black athletes who, who have criticized Jews. We're the only Jews. They're not Jews. We're the real Israelites. It's kind right. of a crazy idea, but it's acceptable now. And the left, let's let's face it, Jack, the left has been has become the source of anti-free speech, racialization, segregation, separation, tribalism, ethnic chauvinism. It is intolerance. It really is now. People should wake up to that. Yeah. You know, one thing, Victor, last thought on this for me is I mentioned this piece once before in a podcast a few years ago. It was probably about three years ago. Uh, Chris Caldwell did a, I think, a significant essay in the Claremont Review of Books about um, how human resources departments, how they kind of rule America and, and rule America culturally, because this is this is where um, you're not going to get hired, right? Or you will get hired or you will come. Did I, you know, look at someone the wrong way? And there's so much tumult, cultural tumult in America has has generated from from HR, right? HR runs the show. And yeah, it kind of makes – yeah. It kind of makes sense that the that the recruiters and the the hires of the world are uh, it's a lefty it's a lefty profession, HR is a lefty profession, and it kind of makes sense here that. Uh, that put it this way: uh, the impression, pathology. whether it's accurate or not, but it is accurate to say the impression, say at most workplaces or universities, is that if you're a white male. And you go to HR and say that you're an object of racial slurs or discrimination, or if you're Jewish and you go there and say that people are anti-Semitic in your workplace or your class or the professor, you're going to go nowhere. It doesn't. That's not the purpose of an HR. The purpose of an HR is to protect the university or the corporation or the institution from so-called Al Sharpton-like pressure groups that will call you racist or sexist or homophobic or trans transphobic. And so they understand that. And so that's what they're worried about. They are not worried about the principles of discrimination and non-discrimination. They just don't. It's not. It's a particular type that they feel can cost them money or social prestige, or they'll be able to virtue signal or performance art about, but that's what they are. They're highly weaponized. I can tell you that I won't mention names or institutions, but I've had colleagues that have gone to the HR and said, you know, that this person pushed me or this person said, called me this name and they didn't do anything. And I know that same HR will, would have fired the perpetrator had it been in a different context. Well, Victor, we have time for one more topic, and it will be about forgiveness. And we'll get to that right after these important messages. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact, 
and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Uh, Victor, I appreciate your, your on letting me... Uh, uh, my mind wander onto onto a topic or two uh, every once in a while, and one of them is forgiveness. And I, I we had talked a couple of weeks ago on a podcast. I, I mentioned this picture I had seen. Of, it was the fiftieth anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, and you had these you know the, these old veterans in gray and blue shaking hands with each other. And to me, yeah, obviously this was a a sign of yeah we. 50 years ago here, we we tried to kill each other, but we have to get beyond that and we have to have for, forgiveness and move ahead because without that, you're... And, but then in 2022, on the left, you know, where presentism is so damn important, the concept of forgiveness, uh, whether it's a Christian-based or whether it's uh, uh, based in the classics, which I this is the goal to get your thoughts on that, on that. Um, is he, is an enemy. Uh, forgiveness is an enemy of leftist ideology. Um, th- that may be pretty basic. People listening might say, duh, we know that. But I don't know. It, it seems to me so uh, central to to uh, leftism to have hostility towards for, forgiving uh, our, our sins of our neighbors and whatever sins of our, of, of our past. Victor, I am interested in your view on on forgiveness uh, and the it, from the classics and however else you want to, to uh, discuss it. You know, w- w- what were the what were the the great what was Socrates and Plato and others, or maybe through Greek uh, tragedy theater? What were the concepts of forgiveness um, in ancient times? And anything well, I think else you you'd could, like to say about this? Well, I'm a philologist, so when we want to know what present vocabulary means and where it derives from, uh, we go back to Latin and Greek in the West. And so there's a Latin word, remissio, remitto, to, to, to remit, to give up or to let go of or to send off. And it comes from the concept in Greek of apohiemi or aphiemi in the compounded form, which means to release from, send out. And what I'm getting at is that, uh, think, you know, that if you want to uh, offer clemency, that's a Latin word, clementia, or you want to you know, you're going to forgive, forgive somebody. It's not a moral 
uh, it's not a moral, it doesn't come morally from your soul or from even your intellect. It's more of a practical matter. So Clementia Caesaris is the idea that Caesar is going to forgive all of his enemies, and that's going to unify the Roman Republic around him, and that he's going to take a chance that his enemies won't interpret that magnanimity, which is a, a it's in Aristotle's ethics, especially the great soulness, that they're not going to take advantage and interpret magnanimity as weakness to be exploited rather than magnanimity to be reciprocated. So it's a practical idea, and that's what it is in Greek originally. Then when you get the fusion of classical culture with Christianity, and you look at the New Testament, and you look at the early church fathers, then you start to see that Clementia starts to change, and it becomes a moral, not a practical idea, that it's going to reflect the way the world must work on the basis of Sermon on the Mount principles. And in Greek, they have a, a word that is an old word, but it starts to bring, get new currency, charizomai. You get charity from it, charis. And it means that there is a forgiveness of sin. It's the New Testament doctrine that no matter what you've done, you have an avenue to regain your soul and regain uh, your morality. And we will formally forgive you in that process for the sins. And that's a very different idea than the early Greek notion, and maybe even the early Greek notion that predominated all the way down to the advent of Christianity, that you help your friends and you punish your enemies. And if you don't punish your enemies, then they take advantage of you and you hurt your friends. And if you don't help your friends only, then you create a non-deterrent or a weak personality. So I think you could argue that the vocabulary starts to reflect the advent of Christianity in a very new idea, that it's not just practical in some cases to forgive enemies or to forgive people, uh, but it's also a pathway into salvation. And it's in, in accordance with the principles of Jesus Christ as articulated. And I just mentioned the sermon of turn the other cheek or do unto others as others would bless it on the meek, that kind of idea. Well, thank you, Victor. I appreciate that. Um, and it's nice to every once in a while, we talk about something that's not necessarily in the headlines. Although lack of forgiveness is always in the headlines when you're reading about Black Lives Matter and, and other such organizations. No, there's no such thing as uh, either. There's no such thing as forgiveness in modern America in left wing political terms. That you're always an enemy or always guilty or always sinful. I saw Michelle Obama the other day said that she couldn't wear cornrows or braids in her hair because America was not ready for that yet. I'm, I'm no Think of the implications of that, that even though I'm first lady and even though I'm probably the most successful memoirist of any author alive, I've made more money. And even though we have four beautiful homes, even though we're worth over $100 million, this racist country would not let me express myself with braids in my hair. Now, right. Bo Derek did it, right? She did it, and she seemed to <laughs> thrive very well. 
She was a Republican, too. Exactly. <laughs> so if she can do it, I think an African-American and we see women through all through the workplace. It's the top levels and then Hollywood celebrities that have all sorts of, of hairstyles and nobody cares. And uh, if we don't care that Joe Biden is shaking somebody's hand who doesn't exist or he believes that his late son died in Iraq or the Iraq war was the, uh, I don't know what it was. It was the Ukraine war at one point. And at one point it was the Afghanistan war. If we're tolerant of that, we're tolerant of fashion and grooming uh, unorthodoxies. Well, you can have four houses and millions of dollars and be the former first lady, but you still on the left have to be a victim. You have to be a victim because if you're not a victim, then the question goes back to who are you? Mm -hmm. If you're not, if you're just juicy Smollett and you're not a victim, then maybe you're not a very good actor that is going to lose a job in a series that's coming to an end. And your career is going to be, I don't know, people are not impressed with your acting skills, apparently. So then you have to become a famous victim even if that requires suspending the laws of chemistry. So somebody throws bleach at you (laughs) that doesn't freeze at, you know, 20 (laughs) degrees or 18 degrees, but you can accomplish that. And so, again, there's a principle to all of these discussions we're having is once you get away from reality and truth and meritocracy and you get into all of these efforts at repertory language, repertory admissions, repertory hiring, original sins that go back and we judge the past by the, when you get into all of that, then you get into a tangled web of lies and you just have to keep lying and lying and lying and accusing and accusing and you have less and less credibility. And that's going to be one of the great questions of the next decade, because I think what's happening, it doesn't have anything to do with Trump, but but I do believe that a lot of people, not just the white majority, but also African-Americans and Latinos and Asians are saying, you know what? I don't see systematic racism. And I look at per capita income because America is a plutocracy. And I look at what Asians are doing or Arab Americans or other groups. And many of them, Cubans, they have uh, parity with the so-called white majority or they have greater income. I think 17 ethnic groups have a higher um, per capita or family income than so-called white people. But they don't see it and at that point. They're going to say, this is, I'm getting tired of this. Just don't do it anymore. If you have a problem and you feel that, you know, that you're a victim of some type of bias or prejudice, then overcome it and do it through accomplishment. And you can do that in the United States. And the thing the left hates the most is anybody who brings up Asians. Because the Asian community systematically has higher incomes, uh, better uh, admission rates to so-called Tony universities than does the white majority. And even though they can point to egregious examples of collective prejudice in our past, whether it's the Japanese internment or the yellow peril laws, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and yet they overcame. And so when you mention that, even uh, young Asians will say, oh, we're not the good minority. Don't stigmatize us. 
But the point is that they are sort of a canary in the mine. And, and then when you add Punjabis from India or you add Arab Americans and you start to see all of these different groups that are not Western European or right. not of Western European ancestry or Southern European, whatever term we use for European ancestry, and they're very successful, then particular groups get very angry at that. And they said, don't don't do that. We're special that that group. And even though we know that Asian Americans since in the last 20 years predictably vote left wing. So it's not like the right is pointing to some right wing group. Um, I think Jesse Jackson once said, uh, if you want to get ahead, if you're an ethnic group, you just take a picture of what an Asian person is doing all day long and emulate it. That was kind of a racist yeah. thing. And that's, he got a lot of criticism. But then he got a lot of criticism in that earlier incarnation. Remember when he said, I hear steps behind me? and I, I do indeed remember that. Yep. I hope that yep. it's not an African-American young male. Right. Right. So Yeah. yeah. Well, Victor, um, you've been great today, as you are. Every day, I appreciate uh, your, the wisdom you shared, and so do our listeners who go to uh, uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes and rate the show. Yeah, thank you, no matter what platform you're listening on, Google Play, Stitcher, if you listen on Victor's website directly, justthenews.com. Uh, but at, at, uh, at Apple, you can leave us no stars or you can leave up to five stars and it's it's uh everybody practically everybody leaves a five-star rating it's four nine 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 the ratings are, it's one of the most highly rated podcasts out there and that's because of victor's relentless uh wisdom um some people leave comments and here's one we read them all and here's one we will actually read now it's from uncle bush baby it's titled Beaming Light in Darkness. You will never find another man as wise, insightful, and enlightening as VDH. Funny and entertaining, too. He is the father, grandfather, everybody needs. I am 30 now, and I've been listening to VDH since the days with Troy, 2018, 2019. He doesn't mean the city of Troy. He means Troy Senek, uh, when, when Victor had a podcast with Troy on... Um, uh, no, ricochet. Uh, sir, you have opened my eyes and shielded me from the modern societal decay. I work in, in corporate, but I live on a farm growing sugarcane and raising cattle. I also recently started a family. Your experiences and insight has uh, they've helped me navigate this life. Sincere love and respect from a South African youth living in thick of what now sounds like California today. Uncle uh, Bush baby. So thank you for your kind words and all else who, who uh, write and leave comments here and on Victor's website, we read them all. Thanks very much uh, again for listening. Thank you, Victor, for the wisdom you shared. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson show. Have a well, good thank day. You. Thank you, Jack. And thank everybody for listening again. It's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore 
of every story, but this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.